1985 to 1987 was a period of uncertainty for me. I turned 30 in 87 and I experienced uh, basically a midlife crisis. I thought uh, only uh, old, indolent, uh, you know, people with no vision, people that were kind of, you know, not real smart face stuff like that. And here I was at 30 and it hit me like a truck. Some people hit it at 40 or 50 or 60, I hit it at 30. And it was a very dark time. I was very annoyed with myself because I thought I was smarter than that or better than that. And uh, essentially it just came down to, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this who I'm supposed to be? And as you know, young parents, once you start having kiddos uh, in your life, you have a mortgage and children to raise, the path is kind of set for you. And you have a long way to drive, a long way to go to try to love them and raise them and train them and get them pointed in the right direction. And you feel somewhat like it is all on me. Uh, during that time, as Cindy will attest, uh, I start, started thinking about changing my life. I almost uh, quit ministry and went to med school. I came very close to uh, cashing in. And part of our marriage story is you've been so kind to to mention. Um, I remember coming home from uh, a period of visiting hospitals and I had a bunch of friends in medicine. I had one that was on the board of uh, a hospital, a teaching hospital, and I had just seen him. And I said, what would it take for me at this chapter, four years of college, four years of grad school, and uh, to take the MCAT and see if I could get in? And he'd mapped out a strategy and he was going to help me. And I went home and I said, honey, I think I want to go to med school. And this is after four years of seminary. And uh, she looked at me and she said, well, I guess that means what we'll to sell the house. And that's who she's always been. The big question was, and for you, you may not be there now. You may never have been there. Good for you. But sometimes our experiences and our circumstances will make us question the reality of our faith. The stuff of life, the experiences we go through, heartache, disappointment, divorces, children who break our hearts, financial loss, moves, parents, complications that we all face in life, those experiences can be louder than our faith. Those experiences can make you wonder, am I believing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? And if you haven't been there, great. May you never be there. My suspicion is most everyone will be there. At some point in your life, you will ask, are my experiences, are my realities, are my circumstances, are they telling me more about God than my faith? Now, the tension can push one of two ways. I guess three ways. You can ignore it and just kind of go on. But one tension is it can push you so far you become self-absorbed, self-introverted uh, to the point it's all about me, my, I. And perhaps on the other side, uh, we can start defining what were my expectations. After all, what did you think life was going to be like at 30 or 40 or 50? And it's a rare couple, and Cindy and I have done this for 40 years now, it's a rare couple that can clearly articulate what they want to be when they grow up. Yeah, we all want to raise our kids. Yeah, we want to see them marry good husbands, good wives. Yeah, we want to have grandkids. Yeah, we want to travel. I'm sorry, that's just not enough on my list. That's just not enough. And sometimes in those quiet moments, you have to start asking yourself, okay, Lord, are these expectations unrealistic? 
Are they undefined? Or have I never really clearly understood what I can expect out of life, out of faithfulness, out of serving you? Now, on one hand, don't be hard on yourself if you're there because I think this is all part of growing up. No teenager knows exactly what he or she wants, right? Any parent knows that. They're idiots. <laughs> Their brains are still developing because we were there too. I was an idiot in my teens. Every teen was an idiot because you don't know what you're doing. One day you're going to be a doctor. The next day you're going to be a race car driver. You have no idea what you're going to do. You don't know what your interests are. And it changes. And that's why those formative years, we worked so hard as parents. The self-absorbed, all-about-me life smells bad. And we all can think about people, or maybe ourselves, when we've been in that all-absorbed, all-about-me path. If you aim at nothing, you hit it every time, right? We all know this goal. We all know this axiom. But your experiences, my experiences, cannot, should not, ever define our faith. In this series on benchmarks, uh, one of the passages I've gone back to again and again and again has been Psalm 90. And after this sort of gestalt period and what am I going to be when I grow up and should I go to med school and seeking more counsel and prayer, um, we made some course corrections. I stayed in ministry, obviously. And uh, the more I pursued clarifying Okay, Lord, my experiences and circumstances are loud, but I've got to trust you no matter what the world tells me, which is one of the reasons I say this thing all the time. Don't let the world teach you theology because your experiences are a bad teacher about the Bible. They're a bad teacher about theology. Once in a while, they're good, but very rarely. Psalm 90 is one of these benchmark passages. It's the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And I want to read a little bit from uh, Dr. Alan Ross, one of my Hebrew professors, uh, his commentaries on the Psalms. But he synthesizes it this way. Psalm 90 begins with an affirmation of their faith in a short but hymn-like acknowledgement of the eternality of God. Jason just wrote and sang lyrics about that. The word of God, the eternality of God. But the lament in verses 3 to 10 forms the contrast to this description with their fragile and fleeting life. The psalmist uniquely describes how the wrath of God for sin was brought has brought trouble and sorrow to their lives. Verses 10 and 11 is a transition to the petition section since they do not know the power of God's wrath and its relation to their morality they ask God to teach them so they will gain a heart of wisdom. Here and throughout the psalm, there is a clear influence of wisdom literature. And in verses 13 to 17, they petition God to turn from his course of wrath, to have compassion on them, and to bless them with a joyful and productive life. They petition God to turn his course of wrath, have compassion on them, and bless them with a joyful and productive life. That is, that's all I'm going to say for the next 30 minutes. That's all I'm going to say again and again and again. And I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't want God to bless you with what you're doing and how you're living life under the circumstances in your present context so that you have a joyful and productive life. It means something at the end of the day. Well, to put this in, that's Dr. Alan Ross, who's PhD, Cambridge, reads Hebrew like I read English 
intimidating, smart, incredible guy. This is how I would say what Dr. Ross said. Life is short. God is eternal. So live our short lives with an eternal perspective. That's how I say it. Because <laughs> I'm not as smart as Dr. Ross. Life is short. And what the hard part for us to learn is it's short because of our sin. Life is short. God's eternal. So we got to live this life understanding that in the sense that I need an eternal perspective because it's so short and I am a sinner. Let's think about this as we look at this psalm. Most Bibles at the front top of your superscription will say a prayer of Moses. And this is a hotly debated topic. I think Moses wrote it. Uh, some of you uh, super uh, geek Bible students, BSFers, preceptors, uh, CB uh, Bible students, you, you, can, you can go down this rabbit hole all you want. Um, I love what uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce wrote years ago. He's, he ties it to Deuteronomy 33.1. And he says, we do not know the occasion, but it's connected to Numbers 20 with the death of Miriam and Aaron just before Moses dies. And I've told you this story so many times, you can fill in the blanks before I begin. But the 40 years, 40 years, 40 years of Moses' life, and when he strikes the rock as opposed to speaking to it, God says you're not going to go into the land as a result of your disobedience. That's how seriously God took his word. He didn't say hit it, he said speak to it. And so Moses then gets the consequences. And when you go to Israel, if you've not yet been, it is God's will for you to go. Uh, when you go to Israel, uh, we may not be on the Jordan side anymore, but we used to go to Jordan to the so-called area of Mount Nebo. And we would say, if you're on this mountain ridge looking across the Jordan, looking west to the Mediterranean Sea, Moses was somewhere in that area. Let's just say he was five miles within that area. And he's standing there and God says, you don't get to go in there. I'm going to let you see it, but your entire last miserable 40 years of the wilderness was abrogated when you hit that rock because you said my word wasn't true. You said, my, you said more than my word. You added to it. You took away from it. You disregarded the word. And as a consequence, you don't get to see it. Now, Moses writes this psalm as, as we get to the end. Those of you who know this psalm already know where I'm going. But as you get to the end, you feel the weight of the consequence of what he did. And that's what I want to look at with you. Because you and I are going to have bitter consequences in life. We're going to have that, that you are not going to live this life without something going wrong. Amen? I mean, and it's going to go wrong again and again and again. I got good news for you. Another cheery Michael Easy sermon. And Moses is going to say the same thing I would say. Actually, I'm saying what Moses said. It's not going to be what you thought. I don't care if you're 20, 30, 50, or 90. You have these things that go through your experience. So how do we recalibrate? Well, let's read the, this, these first two verses. I'll read them because uh, I want to read the superscription. Uh, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Just as a sidebar real quickly, these superscriptions for decades have been debated. Are they part of the original text or are they added, for example, by the Masoretic scribes? Um, and then we have a whole other discussion. Are they the inspired word of God? That's why some Bibles drop them. Some Bibles put a little mark by them. Uh, the longer I've studied scripture, and I, I won't be bulldogmatic about them, I think they are the inspired word of God. Whether it was a later editor who took that psalm and he put the, the postscript to it, I think God moved him in the same way he moves other people. Now, you don't have to buy, drink, drink my Kool-Aid, but the more I study it, and that's why I think they're important to look at. Moses wouldn't say, 
I'm a man of God. But a later editor understanding the context of this psalm, God moved him to pen it, I believe, would have said a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In these first two strophes, this is a declaration of the eternality of God. He has, he has lived forever. He has existed forever. There's no beginning, there's no end to his eternality. Now, Moses says that he is our dwelling place. That word can be translated protection or shelter, depending on the Bible you might use. Um, keep in mind, if you're in the wandering wilderness experience, you're living under a cloud by day and night, and you're moving when that cloud moves. And if you go to Israel, we'll talk about the Bedouins. They don't move like they used to, but the Bedouins are the closest thing today you'll see of a community that basically is in shanties. And they can pack up that shanty pretty easily and move and put it up again. And if you think about 1.2 million people in a wilderness area, you're likely going to have to move for animals to graze, to find water sources. You're going to overuse the land and you need to move from time to time. Even in captivity in Egypt, they probably had some type of shelter or home or you know, some, some rock area they lived in. They're in the wilderness. And so when Moses writes, you are our dwelling place. Your home is a place that pulls us back to you. Um, Moses declares the eternal nature of God, that you have been from everlasting to everlasting. And he uses the mountains as an imagery before the mountains were born. For the ancient Near Eastern mind, the mountains were immovable. Now, even today, we might look at mountains and go, well, erosion and wind and earthquakes. Yes, but it's a fairly acceptable metaphor analogy to say those things don't move. They're not going to move. They're not going to change. And that's the picture Moses gives them of the eternality of God. Um, the psalmist says that God is in his dwelling place, notice. That's a place that we don't understand. Moses was exiled. He never had a home. Um, you know, it's interesting when you get older, how important your home is or how important. I mean, some of you probably grew up in one home your whole life and that's home. And when your parents sell it, you take it as an insult. You sold my home. Uh, Cindy, of course, being a realtor, has lots of fun stories to tell. And when people uh, you probably did this, you took your children's height on a door edge. We had little bifold doors in our, in our first house in Virginia, and we had all the kids' age. And, we'd, and of course, they argue about who's taller. Let's get the tape out. We, you know, we'd, we'd put a random, we put a line there, and you have this, you know, they were this big and they're this big, and you had the dates by it, and, and it's something romantic. And you go, well, I can't leave that scribbling on the wall. As a realtor said, he says, it's a thing. Take a picture of it and replicate it in your new home. But we get attached to things. We get attached to the backyard, to the swing. We were by the creek, whatever it is. We get attached to that home. And even today, isn't it interesting to go back to the place you were born and how it kind of pulls at you? I do not understand all I know, but why is it where we were born physically out of our mother's womb, why does that become home? And why is that important? And the only theory I have, and this is not biblical at all, this is just my own theory of observation is we were dirt, we were from dirt, and we're going back to dirt. And the dirt from which we were born somehow pulls us back to that dirt. That's all I know. Another cheery thought for you. 
the older you get, and some of our military friends taught Cindy and me this, um, is not the location, it's the relationships. It's not the place you live and the street you grew up in. And I, I, I love driving down those old streets in Houston, Texas, where I grew up. In Atlanta, Georgia, going back to see the house where I was born and the school I went to. Cindy could care less about that stuff. But there, I, I can smell Atlanta, Georgia. When I pull into the Shambly area, I can smell a little boy running around in ponds and streams and rocks. And I'm there in a second. It pulls me back somehow. I don't understand it all. But I think that God sowed home into the heart of man and woman. And we want a place to call ours. We want a place that we're safe and we rest and we enjoy it. I mean, if you travel for a living, doesn't coffee taste better in your home and your cup in the morning? As lumpy and old as your bed and pillow are, don't you prefer that over a hotel bed? No matter all the to-do list you'll never get done at your house, isn't your home more comfortable than any other place? Don't miss the theology behind that longing. This world is not our home. And Moses articulates this. You have been our dwelling place. Not Williamson County, not Davidson County, not wherever you grew up. Verse 3, you turn man back to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night. You swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days have declined in your, in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. For who understands the power of your anger and your fury? According to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So after this declaration about God's eternality, now he makes this ludicrous comparison between God and man. God's eternal. Our life is short because of our sin. I want to point out a few things. Brevity and frailty, or as Ross said, the fragile and fleeting part of our life. I love that. The fragile and fleeting part of our life. Material is the weight of God's eternity. I've talked about this too many times perhaps, but kavod glory is the weight of God. What can sustain, what can hold up the weight of God? Nothing. It's too heavy. And if you study the temple complex, some of you have gone through Bible studies that spend the whole time studying the temple. Uh, the two pillars, Boaz and Yokin or Jakin. Those were the names that, uh, that Hiram gave to those two pillars because they were structurally the biggest, the most beautiful, the most ornate thing he built to hold up the top of the complex. And the picture was these sustained the weight of the glory of God when he descended upon and the epiphany came down upon the temple. It's just a picture, but that was the imagery. These can sustain the weight. The psalmist 
Moses is saying that our lives are brief and frail. We're fragile and fleeting, and you can't stand the weight of God's eternality. These clothes are not our home. We're mortal. In fact, the word dust here is unique. It means something pulverized, not just the dust that we find on our shoes. Time is to God nothing. A thousand years is like yesterday. And these numbers are not meant to be strained like gnats, but think about, we, we might live to be 100. He's saying, if you live to be 10 times 100, that's nothing to God's perspective. Um, when, when we're young, time doesn't matter. Time only stands still to fulfill our instant gratifications. When you become, you know, 20s and 30s, time is fun and enjoyable and you're planning and looking toward. 40s and 50s, time changes perspectives. 60 and 70, time really has a different feel to it. 70s and 80s, you know your time is short. 90s, you know your time's real short. Seeing that picture overwhelmed me because Cindy's folks and my folks are standing beside us there. And that's the best they ever looked. And that was 40 years ago. And they're all gone. Uh, it is, to God, it's nothing. To man, it's everything. We, we tenaciously cling to today. Um, it's a ludicrous comparison. Do you know your maternal grandmother's maiden name? If you do, it's because you've studied genealogies. Do you think anybody's going to remember you when you're dead? When we lived in D.C., I did this, this physical prop where we had all these, because of bureaucracy, these binders and notebooks. And the military, those of you in the military probably have an I love me wall with your plaques and different things, your flags. You know, you get a flag wherever you go, fly it over the Capitol, fly it over the base. And uh, typically when a person, if a man retires from the military, his stuff is relegated to the basement. And so you walk down the stairs and you see the I love me wall. And I've told this story again many times, but it made an impression. Uh, this friend of mine, I said, tell me about these. Tell me about, I was stopping and looking. I want to know the story behind him. He goes, oh, that's just an I love me wall. He turned the page. He knew how brief it was, where others have a hard time turning the page. And not to be maudlin or, or morose, but God's eternal and our life is so brief. And that's what he's saying. It's ludicrous to compare God to man's problems, God to man's circumstance, God to what's going on in my life right now with my little world. Our transitory life is because of God's wrath towards sin. And this is a hard part of the psalm, verse 7 and 8. Moses acknowledges that the reason their life was difficult was because of their sin and God brought terror and wrath upon them. When we try to cover sin, we're demonstrating that we know what we did is wrong. That's why when you travel, you're more apt to get in trouble. You know, a person doesn't steal in broad daylight unless they have a way of covering their actions, right? Uh, you're not going to look at pornography on the company computer or on your tablet in broad daylight with friends around. You're going to do things in secret because you know it's wrong and you don't want to get caught. That's the nature of sin. Today we live in an interesting time, but it's not new where we're a shameless society. We have changed the rules and we've, we've we said, uh, I'd rather define God in my way than follow God's definition of God and I'm gonna live the way I wanna live and say it's okay. And if you don't, you're intolerant and hateful and a bigot and we're gonna drown you out. That's our new world. The way to be shameless is to surround your people who do the same thing. 
That's the way you can stand your ground and position and hold to what you believe. You get a bunch of people around you that believe the same thing. The, the old church and the old stodgy Christians, there's no preacher like Michael say, that's wrong, that's sinful. You, you surround yourself with people it, and it's real easy to watch and it's sad to watch. When a person takes that path of sin, they don't want anything to do with the relationships. They're done. They went out of there. And I understand that because it's hard to live in sin and surround yourself with other people that don't think that way. Sin always leads to death. Always. It always leads to death. It's separation. And sin will always be exposed. The psalmist says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Lewis Ferry Chafer had a famous line, a secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. I love it. We think we're going to get away with it, but in heaven, it's an open scandal. It's in full view of God. Since man's a sinner, since our life is trimmed to 70, 80, 90 years, we're going to fly away. Verse 11 and 12, no one really understands God's wrath. I think most believers don't want to talk about God's wrath. Most believers are afraid to say God is a God of judgment. He brings wrath. And they have failed to look at one basic thing, the crucifixion. How can you say God is not a God of wrath? He's only a God of love the way they define love and ignore the basis of salvation that he crucified his only son. He poured the wrath of his, all of his indignation toward our sin on his son. God so loved the world that he sent his monogenes, his only son, unique son, the only son like him in the world ever. He sent him to bear the burden of your sin and mine. That's the wrath of God poured out on mankind in the personal work of Jesus. Here's the good news. He doesn't pour his wrath out on you and me like he could. He poured it out on his son. So he didn't have to pour it out on us. Well, because life is so brief, because God's wrath comes because of our sin, this is a wonderful, wonderful transition in the psalm, which is really depressing at this point. I don't get to see the land. My life is short because of my sin. The wrath I experience is due to my sin and you're gonna bring it on me. And then we have this, this beautiful transition. When I read this, I want you to pay attention to the phrase, our days. If you look at your own text, it's in verse nine and 10 and 12 and 14 and 15 and this recurring theme. So we're talking about the eternality of God and the psalmist weaves in this phrase, our days, our days, our days to remind us eternality versus the brevity of our life. Verse 13, do return, O Lord. And then I love the, the lament slash plea. O Lord, how long? In fact, in Hebrew, how long will it be? It isn't there. It, it's more abbreviated. It's Lord, how long? Which speaks to the heart. Be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, chesed, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. Please do not miss that verse. Acknowledge our afflictions are not simply because of the, we got dealt a crummy hand. Sometimes our afflictions are due to our sin. Make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us and the years that we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants. Again, if, I, if I'm right, Moses didn't get to see the work of God across that Jordan. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. The eternality of God 
transitioning into the life is short, the brevity of, God, of our life because of sin, and then he appeals to God for his great compassion. The hope of this hinges on the word loving kindness. I've talked about that many, many times. I won't review that. But he's saying, according to your loving kindness, because there's no place else to appeal. There's nobody else you can ask for help. Verse 3, we read, God returns man back to dust. And now we see the word return. And again, for you Bible study folks, do not miss this bracketing feature. In the first part of the psalm, he's saying, you return men to dirt. Now he's saying, will you return us? It forms a perfect framework for everything that's included in this. He asked God for joy. Satisfy us with your loving kindness in the morning with joy. Sing for joy and be glad all your days. How many of you by nature See and choose and, and uh, look at joy. Joy comes easy for you. How many? How many of you are like me and joy does not a frequent commodity? It does not come easily. You don't have to keep your hand down. That's okay. Uh, and I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy that's immovable in my circumstance. That I can smile at the future. Um, this passage to me harkens Paul's 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says that this momentary light affliction producing in us the eternal weight of glory. It's a perfect chiasm. Momentary uh, light affliction. Eternal. Momentary eternal. Light affliction. Momentary light. Eternal weight. Light weight. Momentary light affliction. Eternal weight of glory. Affliction glory. It's the perfect chiastic device. We're going to live through a momentary light affliction. That's what this vapor life is for the eternal wedding glory. We live too much in the here and now, guys. We live too much in the here and now. And is life working for me now? Because you're going to have momentary light affliction. Oh, they seem a lot more than momentary. Yes, because we're a vapor. Yes, because our days go quickly. Yes, because we see horizontally more than we look up vertically. Life is short. That should not be a death sentence or a negative thought. What do I do with the time I got? How do I redeem the time? Um, the appeal, let the work, your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. And again, you've got to go back to this 40 years in the wilderness. Everyone that was 20 and younger lived. Everybody over 20 died. That that 40 years was one long funeral procession. I read, I think it was uh, Morris, Henry Morris years and years ago, who did the math if there were 1.2 million people in the wilderness and everyone over 20 died, how many funerals that averaged out per day? And it was, it was some unbelievable number in the thousands if memory serves. That many people they died in the wilderness, they buried in the wilderness. So this wasn't just heat and manna and sweat and grouchy and needing water. There are a lot of funerals because they were burying their parents and their older brothers, older siblings. And he asked them, let your work appear to your servants and your glory, your majesty to their children because they don't understand this yet. Um, the phrase, you know, confirm the work of your hands. This, this has haunted me my life and I hope it haunts you in a good way. When you look at your hands, was your work worth it? Did it matter? How, how many reports do you file? How many sales do you close? How many patients do you serve? How many students do you educate? How many 
fill in the blank. And when you step back from that and get the metaphorical go watch or you leave it and retire, can you look back and say, that was worth the best, hardest years of my life. That was worth the hours I poured into that. Those are big questions. Let me give you four lessons from Psalm 90 that are all prayers, essentially. Since we're finite, I need infinite help. Uh, since he's eternal and I'm not, I need to go to the one who's eternal because my life is brief and I want it to mean something besides my definition of happy. Number one, pray for a broken heart toward your sin. Pray for a broken heart toward your sin. We have become a callous people. This is nothing new in this time and place and generation. Christians throughout all ages become callous in their sin. I'm not a conspiratorial guy. I don't look at these cause and effects and revival stuff the way some people do. But I do ask the question, how much of the mess we're in is due to believers' sins? When believers call what is evil good, when they wrap their arms around people that are doing evil and call it fine and loving... Not to be too indelicate, we murder children under the moniker of choice. I, I don't understand God's patience. I do know about his wrath. And I also think there are imperceptible consequences of my sins and your sins that we cannot measure because they're spiritually appraised, not humanly appraised. So pray that God will break your heart. In spite of God's displeasure, we never register the complaint until God brings it home to us, writes Derek Kidner. In spite of God's displeasure of our sin, it never registers the complaint until God brings it home to us. When you and I live in sin and we get away with it, it doesn't matter until we're caught, until we're exposed, until the heat's turned up, or until the Holy Spirit just beats you up in the corner. The Holy Spirit ever beats you up in the corner? In the 40s, they called him the hound of heaven, and that was a popular phrase for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't chase you down to chew your leg off. He chases you down to bring you back to the master. That's the hound of heaven. That's the way they depicted him. John Owen, others used the phrase. Um, Weiser points out, part of the nature of sin is that men hardly ever realize the ultimate relationship between mortality and sin because we live for the moment. Let me read that again. Part of the nature of sin is that men hardly ever realize the ultimate relationship between mortality and sin because they live for the moment. Because life is short and we're sinners, we don't think about the ramifications of sin. You often hear the expression, you know, was it worth a 20 minute, you know, roll in the hay? Sorry to be indelicate. Was it worth doing that thing for the consequences, and the consequences are heavy. But he's a kind God. And that's what Moses says. Apart from your chesed, I don't have a chance. L listen, men and women, the ground at Calvary is level. There's not a worse sinner or better sinner in this room or anywhere. It is level. My sins are just as despicable as the next person's. Maybe more so. Secondly, pray that we'll number our days to recognize the brevity of life and live for God. Again, these many references to days and years throughout the Psalm, James 4, 14. You yourself do not know what your life will be like 
tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Um, in the morning, if you shave over a mirror, gentlemen, you have steam on the mirror. And it's a very fitting metaphor that when you're shaving uh, and that steam on that mirror goes away in just a moment, that's how quick life is. When you take the hot boiling water off the microwave, off the kettle and the steam stops, when you pull your cup out of the microwave and the steam from the coffee or tea or whatever starts to minimize. That's what the picture is. It's a beautiful picture. It can be a depressing picture. Pray to number your days. It's a great prayer. We had a prominent businessman in our community pass away this week. We just don't know. I, I, I don't want to be a, a maudlin depressing guy, generally. Uh, but we count on things we can't count on. We trust in things that aren't trustworthy. Thirdly, pray for God's grace to make you glad. Now, this is, a, this is an upbeat one, okay? I'm not always maudlin and depressing. I mean, it's my 40th anniversary, for goodness sake. I got to say something good. Pray for God's grace to make you glad. Happiness is, a, is an elusive thing. What makes you happy? A Jets pizza and a Diet Pepsi that make you happy? Binge watching Netflix that make you happy? Winning your online game that you never won before that make a new piece of technology make you happy? What makes you happy? Uh, a lot of you on your Instagram media, I, I stalk several of you, um, are into gardening. And I mean, the bounty of stuff you're bringing in that's got to make you happy. It's got to make you happy. But then you got to do something with it because you can't eat it all. And then when it, when it finally gets hot enough and you got to go out there, do you enjoy defoliating the victory garden? Do you enjoy digging all that stuff up and sweating through it? Do you enjoy it? If you do, you're a godly person, I'm telling you. Because I always hated that part of gardening. I liked getting the tomatoes and jalapenos, but the rest of it's too much work. And it's so fleeting. It's so fleeting. Cindy makes the most amazing killer fresh peach pie on the planet. Everyone who's had it will say the same thing. And you know, when you eat it, it's the most delicious thing. It's light. The crust is flaky. The peaches aren't cooked like they kill them in cobblers. They're fresh peaches and it's got whipped cream on it. I could just eat whipped cream all day. And, and you take a bite and it, the, the flaky of the crust and the peaches and the whipped cream, it's just, it's almost sinful. I mean, you, and you swallow it and you have another, and you eat your piece and you know what? It's gone. Did that make you happy? Absolutely. Absolutely, but it did not last. And then this makes me unhappy. <laughs> I shouldn't eat that peach pie because now I got to get rid of it again. And it's this circuitous craziness we live in. I need God's happiness. I need joy that's otherworldly. And that's why I say all the time, can you smile at the future? No matter your circumstances, can you smile at the future? That's a good prayer for you to pray. And I can attest God is kind and answers it sometimes in my life. When things stink, when they're not what I want, when I see my kids make poor choices, when people break my hearts and I don't feel happy, I don't feel joyful. And I lean back in my office chair after I've been mad at God and read the Bible and done my little prayer book, check, 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 I'm a big Christian, check, check, check. And I lean back in my chair and say, I don't have any joy, Lord. I got no joy. If you don't give it to me, it's just a facade. It's just fakery. I'm just selling positive mental attitude garbage. 
Pray that God will make you glad. Grace is understanding nothing I can ever do will make God love me more and nothing I have will ever do can make God love me more and nothing I have ever done will make God love me less. When you start to grapple with chesed and that God's loving kindness endures forever and nothing you can do will change his chesed toward you, you're beginning to understand the power of the gospel. All of us who have kids or grandkids, you look upon your child, your son or daughter with great delight. There's no greater love than when you see your children loving. There's no greater love when they're doing the right things the right way, which means what you want them to do. Uh, there's no greater joy than when they do the right thing. Watching my daughter parent her, parent my grandsons, uh, there is no greater joy than watching my daughter and son-in-law parent those two little boys. It, it just gives me an otherworldly joy. I can't, I can't believe they're such phenomenal parents. I'm not saying that because she's here. They are such phenomenal parents. Cindy and I just shake our heads going, we never parented this well. We never knew what we were doing. And these kids are so stinking smart in how they do it. And look at those two little boys and go, they're perfect. Any grandparents say Amen. How do you think God looks at you? He loves you. He loves you more than you can love a grandchild. He loves you. And that's the foundation to begin to understand this joy. He delights in his children. I don't understand all I know, guys, but I believe it. When he looks through all the sin and garbage and words I don't want to say in the pulpit, and when he looks at my life through that lens, he sees the perfect son, Jesus Christ, and he says, I love Michael easily. Even though he did all those terrible things, I love him because he's mine. And that love cannot change. That love is immutable. That love is eternal. That love is infallible. That love is otherworldly. And this is our problem, men and women. We define love, we define joy horizontally, not vertically. This is an ongoing theological battle you and I have to face. Do not look at life the way we look at life. Look at life the way he looks at it. And that's what Moses is saying in this wonderful psalm. If you and I had a 10% more mental attention to our spiritual lives, I think we'd be 90% better in our joy. Finally, for pray that God will establish the work of your hands. This is a striking part where twice in the psalm, confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm. This, it strikes me every time I read it. Here's Moses, goodness gracious, the guy who talked to God face to face, the guy who brought the two tablets from Sinai, the guy that did all these miracles in the wilderness, the guy that brought 1.2 million Jews out of Egyptian slavery, the guy that God gave the law to, the all Jews to this day revere Moses more than any human being because God gave them the law. There was no one like him. And he's saying, did my life matter? That's why I love this psalm. Did my life count? Did it mean something? Was it worth it? Um, our work, our career, our homes are important. Please don't ever hear me say they're not. But apart from, here's the weird part. He does not need you and me. He does not need you and me. But he likes to use us. I'll never understand that. And I don't think you have to. I think you embrace it by faith. That's why I like this as a benchmark psalm. 
Can I come back to it again and again? It covers the whole span. God's eternal. My life is short and I'm a stinking sinful person. God, help me live with joy in this circumstance that can be very depressing. And yet you can make me glad. You can give me joy that's otherworldly. 